think it was, uh, in some respects, much ado about nothing. Successful at its political objective, which was to distract the public and media conversation away from ISIS and national security and get it back to this culture war issue we've been debating for many years. No, I wouldn't say that there were more things he could have done, but we were very happy with what he did. We are not looking at what he didn't do. We're looking at what he did do and seeing some really good steps that he's taken. We think that he he did almost everything he could do. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi. Bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. My uh, co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is unable to be with us today, uh, unfortunately. Uh, before we get going with today's topic, let me just take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the online practice management software for lawyers available at www.goclio.com. Thanks to Clio for their continuing sponsorship of this program. Uh, on January 5th, 2016, President Obama announced that he would be taking executive action to reduce gun violence. Surrounded by families of the Sandy Hook tragedy and other mass killings, he vowed to not allow guns to get into the wrong hands. In the past decade, more than 100,000 people have died as a result of gun violence. So will the president's recent action have any effect uh, on gun violence, or will everything remain the same? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this executive order uh, and uh, the implications uh, under the law, the public reaction, uh, and the likely impact it will have going forward. And to help us do that today, we have two guests, and let me introduce them, uh, and then we'll get our discussion going. So first off, let me introduce David B. Kopel. David is adjunct professor of advanced constitutional law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. He's also research director at the Independence Institute, a public policy research organization in Golden, Colorado, and an associate policy analyst with the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. Kopel is one of several contributors to the Volokh Conspiracy blog, a weblog of professors and academics and, and others, part of the Washington Post. And in 2008, he appeared before the United States Supreme Court as part of the team presenting the oral argument in District of Columbia versus Heller. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, David Kopel. Thank you very much. And joining us next today is Laura Cataletta, a senior staff attorney with the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Laura oversees the Law Center's state firearms legislation project, which involves tracking and analyzing firearms legislation in all 50 states. She also shares responsibility for the Law Center's work providing information, research, and analysis uh, to the media, public officials, and activists seeking legal solutions to gun violence. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Laura. Thank you. Before we get into the substance of the issues, I, I wanted to ask each of you to tell us a little bit more about the work that you do. Uh, I, I've Obviously, I've just introduced you and outlined it a little bit, but 
Uh, but David, uh, let's just start with you and talk a little bit more about the work that you do around the area of uh, guns and the law. Uh, well, sure. I've been at the Independence Institute since 1992 and been writing on the, the firearms issue since 1998. I've written many law journal articles in places such as Harvard, Penn, Michigan, Notre Dame, and so on. And I've been cited, my brief's been cited by Justices Alito, uh, Stevens, and Breyer on Second Amendment issues. And I've been cited in many uh, circuit courts of appeal. The Seventh Circuit in Izell uh, described my scholarship as a model of the correct historical and textual uh, analysis of the meaning of the Second Amendment. And I'm currently representing almost all of Colorado's sheriffs uh, before the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in a federal civil rights lawsuit uh, based on the anti-gun laws, which were pushed through the Colorado legislature by the Michael Bloomberg lobby in 2013. A civil rights lawsuit. Explain that to me. Uh, Well, we allege that the ban on common standard magazines, which is up to 20 for handguns and up to 30 for long guns, and the requirement that people can't even loan firearms to each other unless they go to a gun store to process the loan and the return, even for a a four-day loan, uh, and then the return after the four days, as if the people were buying a new gun out of the store's inventory, uh, that both of those violate the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and in some respects, for certain litigants, um, also violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we succeeded so far in getting rid of uh, two provisions in the 2013 law, uh, which had the effect of actually prohibiting almost all magazines and which also made it impossible for owners of grandfathered magazines to, for example, uh, take them to a gun store for repair or to, in in an emergency such as a fire or flood, uh, safely store them with someone else. Interesting. Uh, Laura, Tell us a little bit about more about the work uh, that you do at the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. We were started um, back in 1993 after an assault weapon massacre at a law firm, which took place at, in 101 California Street, which is an office building in downtown San Francisco. And the lawyers that survived that incident or were the relatives and loved ones of the victims started this organization. And their thinking was they wanted to provide a legal response to the gun violence epidemic in this country. So they they started an organization of lawyers. And in some ways, the organization serves as a law firm to the gun um, violence prevention movement nationally. So we're a national nonprofit. We provide expertise and information to activists across the country, legislators. We file amicus briefs in Second Amendment cases, and we track legislation and litigation all throughout the year in all 50 states and all of the Second Amendment cases. So as mentioned, on, on uh, earlier this month, President Obama announced that he would be taking executive action. There were a number of components to uh, his announcement and, and what he laid out as as, as what he planned to be doing. Uh, David, uh, let's, let's start with your general reaction to what President Obama announced. Well, I, I think it was, uh, in some respects, much ado about nothing. I mean, it, it was successful at its political objective, which was to distract the public and media conversation away 
from ISIS and national security and get it back to this culture war issue uh, we've been debating for many years. I mean, you could have just as equally said, uh, we're going to have a new executive orders on uh, gay marriage and abortion and ended up uh, not doing much on that, but it would have uh, all likewise consumed a lot of public attention. You mean you mean that there wasn't a lot of there there? I mean, is that is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, there 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 is some potential there on some of the minor things that didn't get much attention, but on the the big thing he talked about, which was uh, the laws about people who sell guns. Um, all he did was restate, which has been the the federal law since 1968, and he put out a brochure from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives, which begins by saying it's not legally binding, but which actually does provide a, an accurate uh, explanation of federal law about who is required to have a license to sell a gun, which in short means if you're engaged in the business, you have to have a license, uh, which is repetitive transactions for the principal purpose of livelihood or profit, and it excludes occasional sales or the, the sale of all or part of a collection. And the law has never cared uh, where the sale takes place in the sense that if, whether you sell out of a home-based business or at a retail gun store or at a gun show or you advertise on the Internet, regardless, if you're engaged in the business, you have to have a federal firearms license to do, a, to do those sales. And, of course, if you're not engaged in the business, uh, you're not a, you may not be issued a license to do that. And the, the ATF guidance, non-binding guidance, provided some examples of that, of, of different people in different scenarios. And it, it accurately reflected what the law is, uh, both in its text and intent, and is uh, affirmed in court cases. So I, I can't criticize the president for accurately and forcefully restating existing law. Laura, do you agree with that assessment of the president's announcement? Was it essentially just a restatement of what the law already was, or, or did you see hear anything new in it? Well, he took what was in case law, as David mentioned, and um, put it all together in one place in a document that provides guidance. So even though it, it, does, it does exist here and there in different cases, to put it all together and state this is the standard is actually – something that probably will result in more people getting federal firearms licenses, which means more background checks. So we actually think it was a big step. We wish we would have loved to have seen something more. We would have loved to have seen Congress close the background check loophole. But So this is not anybody's ideal situation to have to resort to executive action. But in the absence of action by Congress, there's not a whole lot that the president can do. And so we think it was a very important step. And um, we think it will probably, like I said, result in more background checks, which means fewer guns sold to criminals and people with violent mental health histories. There was a lot of talk in the days you know, leading up to this uh, about his uh, conferring with the attorney general to, regarding the extent of his authority to take executive action on this issue. Lord, do you feel he could have gone farther or was your organization hoping he would go farther here? I heard you say that you wished Congress would do more, but was there more the president could have done? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, yes, there maybe there were there were more things he could have done, but we were very happy with what he did. We are not looking at what he didn't do. We're looking at what he did do and, and seeing some really good steps that he's taken. We think that he 
he did he did almost everything he could do and um you know again without congress taking action there's only so much you really can't do as as a you know as the president doing it unilaterally um fortunately states you know, many states have closed the background check loophole. Eighteen states have enacted their own state laws that require background checks prior to the sale of an unlicensed, um, a sale by an unlicensed seller. And in some cases, that's through a permit. In some cases, that's a point of sale background check. So really what our organization focuses on is state law, because that's where the movement is happening. That's where action is happening. And it's a lot more likely to get things done through state legislatures than through Congress. David, do you uh, do you have any concerns that, that the president, if I'm hearing you right, you don't have any concerns that the president overstepped his authority here. You're feeling that he's essentially just restated what the law was. Well, I, I think not. Not yet. The the I have two concerns. One is on he said that the Social Security Administration is going to write a regulation which will say that if you're a Social Security beneficiary and you uh, appoint someone to be your financial representative, you know maybe you're you're someone who's never balanced it. You're a widow and you've never balanced a checkbook in your life, so you you appoint your adult son to manage your receive your social security payments and manage things for you that that somehow is an admission that you under the federal gun control act have been adjudicated a mental defective and uh therefore are prohibited from possessing a firearm with a 5 year uh federal felony uh that that seems a gross violation of of due process uh not to mention the second amendment and then the second thing that I think concerns me is he's essentially said he's going to encourage uh, federal procurement of, of so-called smart guns, which at this point in technology uh, aren't even close to being reliable enough uh, for use in, in life or death, defense, self-defense or defense of other situations. And in, in fact, in, in some ways, uh, significantly increase uh, dangers to law enforcement, military personnel, because all of these things are essentially computer radio type devices. And so if you can like, for example, do radio jamming uh, on a battlefield, you might be able to disarm an entire U.S. unit. So I think it's premature to start forcing the federal government or or anyone else uh, to buy these guns before they've been developed to the uh, appropriate standards of reliability. What do we mean by smart guns? Explain those. Explain that to me. Uh, these are the objective is to keep the gun from being used by somebody other than the authorized user. And the original uh, beneficiaries of this were supposed to be law enforcement officers, because there were a lot of cases where law enfor- back in the say the 70s or 80s, where a law enforcement officer they typically carry their gun in an exposed belt holster. So somebody comes up from behind, snatches the gun away, and then all of a sudden the bad guy's got the gun, and you know standing two feet away from the law enforcement officer. So the the theory was, well, maybe you can put a palm print reader in the grip of the gun or, you know, something similar to that, and that will allow only the authorized user to own the gun. Legitimate, it's it's had a huge amount of corporate welfare from the federal government and some states uh, to support it. Uh, They haven't gotten there yet in terms of anything that anybody wants to buy, at least people who care about uh, reliability. I mean, the, the challenges of putting a computer uh, inches away from an environment which is full of 
explosions, vibrations, hot gases, uh, particles, and all that, uh, so far has not been overcome. That, that's not to say they'll, they never will overcome it, but not, it hasn't worked so far. The, the good thing for law enforcement officers is actually instead of redesigning guns, which is a big challenge, uh, they've redesigned holsters. So now many law enforcement officers wear something called a retention holster, which to simplify, you can only draw the gun if you put your hand in at a very particular angle and then press a release button or slide with a finger that's exactly where it would be if you were drawing a gun from your own waist, uh, but is wouldn't work at an angle of, of say, someone sneaking up behind. And so that, that's been a, a really constructive uh, lower tech way we've reduced uh, gun takeaways by, by bad guys against law enforcement. But I mean, the, the, the resistance among law enforcement to uh, switching to smart guns is, is, is just enormous because of the reliability problems. You know, you don't want anything that adds, guns can, can misfire, you know, they can have all, because of mechanical problems, there's already a risk that it might not work properly. And so you add any additional risk on top of that, uh, that is something that gun users are very intensely against if they depend on the gun for anything critical, whether that's hunting where you may get one shot in the year in a two-second window or self-defense situations. I, I think one day smart guns will be popular among families who really don't care about reliability because maybe they only want the gun for plinking a tin cans in the backyard, and they feel it adds an extra layer of, of uh, safety to avoid, you know, gun misuse by a child, for example. I think that that's the market is the people for whom reliability is not that important and they like the extra technology, but it's it, it's not there yet in terms of reliable products that, that people want. Okay. So, Bob, um, yeah, there, go ahead. I would, I'd like to respond to that. There are yeah. um, there is already a company selling these guns, and it's a it's a device that has a wristband, and if you're wearing the wristband and you are a certain proximity from the gun, it will fire, otherwise it won't. Um, and it really is mainly when we talk about these kinds of guns, it's about protecting children in the home because 73% of children age 9 and under report that they know the location of their parents' firearms. So this is a big problem, not just for unintentional shootings, but as kids get older, um, teen suicides are much more prevalent in homes where a gun exists in the home. So an owner-authorized firearm is, is very important for um, the safety of children living in homes with guns. And even though this technology has been around for a long time, um, it's been studied for a very long time. The opposition from the gun lobby has been so intense. There have been boycotts of manufacturers that work on this technology, and um, it, they've made it. There have been death threats to people that threat that um, try to sell these kinds of guns. And the, the aggressiveness that you must face if you want to work on this kind of technology or sell these kinds of guns is so strong that people actually shy away and they're afraid to get involved with this kind of guns, these kinds of guns that could save thousands of lives. All right. We, well, let, let, let yeah, me be a little more let me, realistic let me, uh, about that. Let me, See, David, let me come back gun, to you in just a second. We're going to just take a quick break here sure. at this point and uh, I'll pick up where we left off in just a moment, but uh, stay with us. We will be back uh, in just a few moments to talk more about uh, President Obama's executive order on guns. 
Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and with me today is David Kopel and Laura Cataletta, and we are talking about President Obama's recent executive order on reducing gun violence and uh, its impact under the law. Uh, and David, I, I cut you off there. So, uh, did you want to say something more on the smart gun issue? Sure. The, the the only so-called smart gun which anybody has attempted to market is made by this company called Armatix, and it was only available in 22 caliber, which is essentially your last choice uh, for self-defense. Uh, very very small round, uh, and and the when it got into the hands of testers. It performed miserably. It was it, it, its lack of reliability, not firing when it's supposed to, was disastrous. No, nobody would want this. But on the other hand, you know, it's a free country. If you want to sell a gun like that, go ahead. But the reason why consumers and anybody else who cares about the Second Amendment uh, criticized Armitex for trying to come to market was because there's a law in New Jersey which says as soon as there's a smart gun, so-called, on the market, that sets in motion something that will then prohibit the sale of all normal guns. You know, if you, if you repeal that New Jersey law, which is a, I think, a pretty clear violation of Heller in that it's a comprehensive ban on every normal handgun, uh, one because of the of availability of this inferior uh, Armatex gun, uh, you know, then then people would be more uh, more willing to stock it. But any any gun store that sells it, you know, the consumers are going to say, "Look, you put this in your store, you have just imposed a comprehensive handgun ban on normal guns for all the people in New Jersey." You know, and and a consumer who supports Second Amendment rights would never want to buy from a store like that. So if you get rid of this ridiculous New Jersey law, uh, then companies can try to come to market with whatever they've got and convince consumers who want it. But, you know, I predict the demand is still going to be minuscule uh, until they produce guns that are of much higher quality uh, than this joke from Armatix. Well, I have two things to say to that. First of all, the New Jersey law is being amended. Um, It's already passed, I believe, the assembly um, by the same sponsor that brought the bill bill that became the law that you're referring to. Um, So the, the amended version is going to require that people selling guns have to stock um, 
a personalized handgun option, but they it doesn't it would not ban existing non-personalized handguns. So the law is going to be amended, and so most likely at least, and so that will give an opportunity to find out if David's right about whether um, you know the gun lobby will back off and stop threatening people that sell these guns and actually allow people to buy safer guns. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that um, part of the executive actions announced by the president were to increase research and development efforts um, into this technology. And that's one of the problems, is that there really hasn't been enough research into this because if you know that you're going to be boycotted you know, for trying to manufacture this, there's not a lot of incentive to um, develop a better gun that is owner-authorized. So hopefully with, with increased um, R&D going into this, maybe we will see a better product. Laura, what's your... Well, what's, let me just say, well, R&D has been... Yeah, let, I mean, just to move off the smart gun issue for a minute, like one of the other issues that, that was sure. talked about in, in this uh, announcement, uh, and you alluded to it earlier, was this uh, reporting of mental health information. Uh, David, you talked about the, the social security aspect of that. Uh, Laura, what's, what's your organization's position on this sort of enhanced reporting uh, of, of mental health information as part of the way to address gun violence? Well, um, you know, violently mentally ill people are already prohibited from purchasing and possessing firearms by federal law. But the federal government can't require that states send the records to the FBI to be included in the background check database. Um, And so the states have to do that voluntarily. And until recently, states have really been terrible about sending these crucial records to the FBI. And it has gotten better since the Virginia Tech incident, which really brought this issue to light. That's when people started looking to see how many records were actually in the database. Um, But there's still a lot more that can be done. Uh, States still don't report as many records as they should. And it, it makes absolutely no sense to have a record, have a law in the books that says if you have a, you know, certain mental health records, you can't possess a gun in this country and then not have the records that would be relevant to find out who those people are. Is better reporting an important uh, goal uh, in, in addressing gun violence from your perspective? The reporting is absolutely an important goal. So this is how you enforce the laws on the books. This is what the NRA has been saying over and over for, for you know, at least a decade. We need to enforce the laws on the books. We don't need new laws. Enforce the laws on the books. That's exactly what this would do. The, the law is already there. The federal law has been there for a while. A way to enforce that law is to put the records in the system so we can find out who has these mental health histories. David, were you going to say something on that? Sure, and I would agree with with most of that, uh, provided we we stick with what the federal law says, which is it's when somebody has been adjudicated as a mental defective or mentally incompetent. And so, you know, if you have somebody is is civilly committed uh, for a a certain time because of mental health issues, then as she correctly says, those are the records that should be submitted to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. We want to be careful, though, because there have been a lot of abuses of that, where instead of reporting adjudications, they sometimes just report, you know, that somebody's getting voluntary treatment or, you know, that a, a, a confidential doctor-patient information, things like that. And that, that's why the the mental health providers are very wary of a related thing that President Obama did with these executive actions, which is essentially to eliminate the health, ins- the the HIPAA, the patient privacy 
uh, protections uh, regarding to related to mental health. Um, and the, the providers are very concerned that if somebody it will discourage people from going to a mental health provider. It's one thing, you know, to go to a psychologist because you have a problem, and that's not the same thing as having been adjudicated as a mental defective. And we have we've had a lot of problems of people who are just getting treatment uh, and have not been acting in any dangerous way, but they get put in this system as a prohibited person, even though there, there was no adjudication, no due process, no no neutral decision maker to hear both sides of the story. But as long as you protect due process, I think it's absolutely right that when we have genuine adjudications, uh, that those should go into the uh, the records. And of course, it's also important, there's a case before the Sixth Circuit right now, that when somebody gets better and stays better, it doesn't function as a lifetime felony prohibition. The Sixth Circuit case is a guy who uh, had a very short-term commitment because he was suicidal in the 1970s after his wife left him for his best friend and stole all his money. Uh, and he's been fine. You know, say he was in for a few weeks, got better, and has been fine since then. And there's no process in his state of Michigan for him to ever be allowed to own a gun again. And that, that's a, uh, a unfair and, and, a, and a violation of uh, due process rights. So we all saw the frustration uh, that President Obama expressed in in announcing this these executive orders and you know I, I I suspect that there are a lot of people in the country who share the the feeling that that something needs to be done uh, and that whatever the laws are now aren't working so what 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 should be done going forward Laura you you said that you're pushing more on the state level than on the federal level but what can be done to end well, first of all, I would just like to mention that a lot is being done. I think that there is a narrative out there that nothing's happening and nothing's getting better. And look what happened at Newtown, this horrible massacre, and still nothing gets done. But actually, this is really not the case at all. Since Newtown, there have been over 100 smart new gun laws enacted in 40 states. And one of the most popular um, laws that's been passed in states is domestic violence laws. So these are laws that would keep firearms out of the hands of domestic abusers. We've also seen background check laws enacted. Um, we, there are ballot initiatives that have been enacted and that are going to be on the ballot in 2016. So all kinds of things are happening. Um, in addition to um, offensive things like domestic violence and background checks, there is, there's a lot of defensive work happening in the state level. So the gun lobby pushed, um, pushed a bill in 21 states in 2015 that would allow a person to carry a concealed, loaded weapon in public without a permit. So that was clearly a huge, um, a huge priority for the gun lobby. And this was, these bills were stopped in 15 of those states. Unfortunately, they were enacted in a few of the states. So in three states. So um, we, can't, we can't only focus on the offensive work. We have to be on the defensive at all times because the gun lobby is pushing these kinds of bills. They're pushing guns on university and college campuses. They're pushing guns even in K-12 schools. They're trying to repeal background check laws that are on the books. Um, so we're working on both fronts, offensive, defensive. We're working on ballot initiatives. And there is a whole host of things that can be done to make the public safer in, in the state. David, what's your perspective on this? What, 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 does, what needs to be done that's not being done to control gun violence uh, in this country? 
Well, first of all, I, 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 we have made tremendous progress on this issue. Compared to the early 1990s, our rate of firearms murders has fallen by about half. And, this, and our rate of violent gun crime has fallen even more. So that is huge progress. There's not a lot of social issues where we've made that much progress. And if you look at the rate of gun accidents compared to their, their peak in the early 1970s, they're down by 88% among adults and by 92% among children. So you'd be hard-pressed to find many uh, social issues on we, what, which we've made such tremendous progress. And, and do you attribute that to legal? To, to cha- do you attribute that to changes in the law or to something else? It's a, it's a combination of things. We've certainly got, on the, the crime side, we've certainly gotten tougher about sentencing repeat violent offenders, including gun criminals. There's, there's probably some more progress in some areas on that that needs to be done, like, like Chicago. But uh, that, that's been one thing that's been helpful. Uh, there's been tremendous consumer education on the safety issue. Uh, you know, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is a trade association for the industry, has this program they do with the lieutenant governors and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Farms, and Explosives called Operation Child Safe, where they give away free gun locks to people. Uh, the Eddie, uh, NRA has a sort of Smokey the Bear kind of character named Eddie Eagle, who teaches gun safety to younger children and that won an award from the National Safety Council. So there's all kinds of, of fronts of activity going on. And this is at the same time when the gun supply in the United States has gone up tremendously. I mean, we're, we've got over 120 million new guns uh, just in the last 20 years. So that that tells you that when we think about genuine gun safety, it, it's wrong to think of this like pro-gun, anti-gun dichotomy, because we can, we've demonstrated you can have more guns, which is, you know, pro-gun, I guess, but at the same time, we can also have much better safety, as in our reduced rates of homicides and accidents. So we shouldn't be just thinking pro or we should be thinking about what particular laws help or don't help. And I think part of the limitation of the uh, the post-Newtown legislative push was it was very hard to come up with something that actually related uh, in, in a serious way when you examine the facts to these, you know, that, that infamous crime or others. As, you know, uh, Press Secretary Carney admitted a few weeks ago uh, after the president reeled off these, this litany of infamous gun crimes, well, which, which of these would have been prevented by anything you're proposing? And he couldn't name anything. I, I think we are also coming to a consensus that these gun-free zones are a, a magnet for bad guys, in, including terrorists. When we have in almost every state laws that say if you are a law-abiding, trained adult who passes a fingerprint-based background check, uh, which, which can take months with all the records they look at, and a safety training class, we give you a permit which says you can carry a gun everywhere in the state, basically. If, if we do that, then why do we make some places off limits to those people, including a college campus for the adults on the campus or a, a parking lot or a hospital and so on? Why, make, why create these special zones of vulnerability? Because what, what we see is, if you think about the, the infamous mass shootings that have taken place, virtually all of them happen to take place in these so-called gun-free zones. A real gun-free zone with metal detectors like you have at the airport or some government buildings, that's fine. But when it's just a sign, all you do is 
essentially make the the law-abiding people easy, easy prey for the people who are willing to violate the law. Right. Um, um, so, Bob, I yeah. just, oh, sorry, go ahead. I just, I just wanted well, to say that there's, there's. Can you make, oh, make it quick because we're near the end of our time here? Well, then I'll just say one thing because there was a, there's a lot to respond to there. But um, the one thing I will point out is that. Um, he mentions, you know, that that gun crime has gone down, and a perfect. You asked if that had to do anything with the laws, and I just wanted to cite a perfect example. Um, California ranks on our own study as the number one state um, with the strongest gun laws in the country, and many of those laws were passed in the last few decades. And California went from having the 35th highest gun death rate to having the ninth highest gun death rate. Um, during that same time period. So even though um, gun deaths are falling overall across the country, California's has fallen at about twice the rate as the rest of the country, and it has been enacting strong gun laws all along the way. Yeah, we, we are uh, actually past, <laughs> past the end of our time, but we have a few more moments to wrap up. Uh, and so before we finish the show, I'd like to just give each of you an opportunity to share your, your closing thoughts uh, and... Uh, uh, and also let our listeners know how they can follow up with you if they'd like to do that. Um, so, Laura, says I just cut you off, uh, let me uh, give you the uh, first opportunity to uh, give us your final thoughts. Um, sure. So you can reach us through our website, which is smartgunlaws.org. And on our website, you will find all of our publications, which include our scorecard, which I just mentioned, which ranks all of the states in order and gives them a letter grade. And then it compares the states to the gun death rate. It compares the grades to the gun death rate in that in those states. And we see a very strong correlation between states with strong gun laws and lower gun death rates. We also go into a lot of detail about all of the many different types of common sense policies that can be enacted at the state level. And we detail which states already have those laws and all the nuances of those laws in each state. So I would encourage you, if you're interested in this issue, to go to our website and learn more. Thank you very much. And David Kopel, your closing thoughts. I'm going to give a half-hearted endorsement to the uh, the Law Center's uh, website, <laughs> because even though I think a lot of their social science is has serious flaws in it, their compilations of what the laws currently are in the various states is excellent, and I've in the past referred journalists to that uh, as a good resource. So I commend them for, for doing a good job on that. When we think about gun control, there's such a tendency of people to go into one corner or the other, and you're pro-gun or you're anti-gun. The true answer is in the middle, and that does, doesn't mean just half of what each side says, but it recognizes that guns in the right hands substantially enhance public safety, and guns in the wrong hands are terribly dangerous to public safety. So the appropriate gun laws are the ones which really have a good effect in taking guns out of the wrong hands without infringing the rights of law-abiding citizens uh, to self-defense with firearms and, and other legitimate activities. And my website is davecopel.org, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-L.org. And I'm also on Twitter at at Dave Copel, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-L. Thanks so much. Well, we've been talking about uh, President Obama's executive actions on gun control earlier this month with David Copel, associate adjunct professor of advanced constitutional law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law and uh, research director at the Independence Institute. 
and also with Laura Cataletta, Senior Staff Attorney at the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with us today and for sharing your perspectives on this issue. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that does it for today's episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. Please be sure to join us next time for another great episode. Remember what you want, legal think, lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.